Hi, welcome back to our next podcast on Tap Talks HR. Today I'm really happy to have Stephen Cox with me. Hi Stephen. Hi Anthony. And, and Stephen, I, today we're talking about the importance of DNI in enabling corporate strategy, which we've only got 20 minutes, but um, uh, let's yeah. get stuck into that one. Before we start, do you want to just introduce yourself and just give us a bit of background of you and who you are? Yeah, sure. So th- thanks very much for the opportunity to have a chat. Uh, in my current role, I'm Fujitsu's uh, Global Ambassador for Diversity and Inclusion, something I've been doing for about a year and a half. Uh, immediately prior to that, I was responsible for our UK business with public sector and transport, so all of the work we do with central government departments, local authorities and transport authorities. Um, in the beginning of my my career I actually have a degree in physics and an engineering background so I joined um, the, the company as a software engineer and have taken on a number of different roles um, along the way. About five or six years ago I came out at work um, a very big process for me to go through personally um, and having done that um, I helped co-found our LGBT network called Shine uh, I then became its executive sponsor and I've been working and supporting uh, wherever I possibly can all aspects of diversity and inclusion through the programs that we've had uh, in Fujitsu uh, and most recently I'm really pleased that uh, we were the first Japanese based company to uh, sign up to and support the United Nations business standards for LGBT. That's fantastic, and and I know um, you've been doing some research in the world of DNI, but everyone has a, a different view on this, and we're not here to talk about the DNI business case. Uh, I know mm-hmm. we, we talked about that before we started, but what is diversity and inclusion to you? Right, uh, good, good question. So, and I always like to separate them because quite often uh, we will talk about DNI or diversity and inclusion as if it's this sort of one singular concept. And what I like to do is talk about workforce diversity. So very much thinking about it from an individual human being perspective and recognising that we are all unique in a really wide variety of ways. That could be as, as, as sort of simple and obvious in some ways about our gender. It could be about our sexual orientation. It could be about whether we have a disability or not, our educational background, our race or ethnicity, our social background, um, some maybe about the working styles that we have and so on. All, all of those factors that just make us who we are as individuals. And then I sort of think about inclusion in the way of uh, workplace inclusion. So we're then thinking about what's it like in our workplace? Uh, yes, what are the policies and procedures in place that sort of define it in a, in a very tangible sense, but much more also about the culture. What's it like to work around here? Uh, do we have an environment where people can be themselves? They can express their thoughts. They can talk about what they did at the weekend if they want to as part of social interaction. Or do they feel that they need to hold back on uh, parts of who they are? And it's only really when you get the two together that you really get the benefits. So when you start having the diversity and the inclusion uh, together where it makes a difference. You know, it, it's a bit colloquial, but I think one could almost say that if, if you have diversity without inclusion, you're almost in danger of leading lambs to slaughter because you'll you're bring the diverse people into the organisation and they'll, they'll find a non-inclusive culture that, where they can't thrive. Um, and then the other way around, if you have the inclusion without the diversity, then by definition almost, the inclusion will be defined around the people that you've got. 
and therefore it will become an exclusive culture for those who are not part of that group that you've already got. So there are hazards with either of the two extremes. And so I think it's really important to think of the two together and all of the work that one does and the changes that one brings about to actually make progress on both sides. And that's really interesting, I think, because um, there's a lot of talk at the moment about diversity and inclusion being separate, but I really like that analogy of the lambs <laughs> to the slaughter, um, because uh, I think there is a big focus on uh, gender pay gap and everything that reporting, and obviously there'll be more reporting in about six months' time, so there'll be yeah. a lot of activity around diversity of gender but you're right if you're not doing that inclusion stuff at the same time that's going to fall apart it's going to be short-termism yeah absolutely and well i think things like the gender pay gap reporting and so on are fantastic initiatives from a personal perspective Uh, and i fully expect that that will reach into new and different areas i think it's also worth making sure that we're not just thinking about the obvious the visible differences that we have Uh, you know people who are lgbt it may not be apparent people's social background may not be apparent in an inclusive context you know the banter that's used the standard company jokes and anecdotes that are used um, may actually cause people to react in a, in a quite negative way if you're not careful for reasons that aren't necessarily intentional but could be reflecting something about somebody that you don't necessarily see. So I think there are huge benefits to be gained from some of these initiatives around pay gap reporting and so on but we have to then sort of think well what does that mean for those uh, groups and identities that we all inhabit that are not necessarily as easily identifiable or as, as measurable because, but that doesn't mean they're any less valuable than they need to thought about. And, and that's really interesting because I think that brings us slightly on in the conversation a little bit. Um, whereas you're saying it's actually more connected to the overlying culture of the organisation broadly across the organisation. And you've been doing a lot of research, I know, in the last couple of years especially uh, in, in this area. So what have you been your main insights when looking across organisations in this area? So, so yeah, I, I was prompted to sort of come into this role and co-create this role prompted by a question which is what what, do you, what does best practice look like uh, and we often talk about best practice in a quite colloquial way actually what we really mean by best practice is somebody did something over there it seemed to work quite well we'll now call that best practice um, and I, I, was, I want to get underneath it a bit more than that so well, what what should be happening uh, in global corporates in particular uh, what how does one handle a situation where you have a company that's spread over many geographies across many different market sectors with lots of different people in uh, behaving and operating in different ways and try and understand what does good look like and try and capture that and bottle it up so I spoke to probably um, about 200 organizations from global corporates through to uh, local companies consultancies uh, academic institutions third sector bodies and so on and read I don't know how many documents as well just to try and distill out what seemed to be some of what I've called success criteria and the number one success criteria that uh, came through in all of those conversation research was about senior sponsorship and in that context, we're talking, yes, about people who may be the executive sponsor of a women's network or an LGBT network or for people with disabilities or race and ethnicity, but actually much higher than that. It's about does the, do the most senior people in the company at the board level and the C-suite level really understand what this is about, why it's so important, how this is about the future of one's company? And then the other success factors underneath that 
We're about, have you got a strategy? Do you have a global program? Um, is everything relevant and connected to the global corporate strategy? So on. I sort of look at those thinking, actually, this is, actually, this is a, a sort of business change program. You know, the, the, the things that people are talking about where it's made a real difference in their companies, they have implemented, whether they thought about it beforehand, they've effectively implemented the business change program, which then made me think, well, why do we handle diversity and inclusion differently? Why often is it uh, something that may be delegated into an HR function or delegated into a uh, responsible business function or somewhere else? Why, why is it not the strategic issue uh, and why is it not being addressed in that way? And what can we do to actually connect the corporate strategy down to the work that's actually going on at the ground? Okay, and, and I mean, that's, that's great. And I think you're right when comparing it to other strategies of that importance without, uh, within a business. So what kind of things do you think that the ex-co's and, and large organisations should, should be thinking about now that you've done this research? Yeah, um, so, so I think that the, the ex-co's and the board members, I think, need to really grapple this as being a, a strategic issue. This is about the future of the organisation. If one doesn't have the right mix of people within one's company, uh, then one can't deliver one's corporate strategy. I mean, it's that simple. It's the people that deliver the corporate strategy. Um, and it's the people that implement all the work around the world that create the identity of the organisation. They're the ones who are creating the brand reputation. They're the ones who are helping recruit people to come into the company and so on. And if that is seen by board members as being a, an HR project, then there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the importance of managing the human capital, if you like, of, of the organisation. So what I would advocate is that one starts at the very top. One starts with the global corporate strategy, or if one's a national organisation, the, the national strategy, and then just sort of drills it down stage by stage in the way that one often would with a, with a change programme. So if, if, the, if the global corporate strategy is, is one statement, then what's the interpretation of that when it comes to people and about the types of people that one needs in the organisation and where around the world they may be and whether you need mobility of people between one geography and another in order to manage implementation and, and best practice. Then we, we sort of all know the old adage of what gets measured gets done and many, many corporates behave that way. If there are metrics, then there's something to measure against. So I'm a great fan of having uh, internal commitments, so objectives that might be by 2020, we want 25 or 30% of our um, mid-level managers to be women or from a different racial and ethnic background to the dominant group or whatever the metric may be. It's not a forever measure. It's the what do I want to do for the next year or two and we'll come up with some new measures to follow on from there. But also think about external commitments. So I mentioned that Fujitsu have signed up to the UN Business Standards for LGBT. There are the Women's Empowerment Principles. There are initiatives around race and ethnicity, around disability. So participating in the external commitments starts to create a degree, if you like, of external accountability. Quite quite a challenge, actually, from a corporate perspective to think about it that way. But I think it's really important that one externalises those commitments. Then think about how one engages with the communities that one operates in, uh, what is your responsible business programme and what does the overlap look like between the people you have in your business and the, the, the uh, communities you're serving or the communities you're seeking to work with. And then possibly go for some benchmarks. So how would you like to see your company organisation ranked? So that's all about commitments. That's about the how are we going to measure ourselves for the future. Um, underneath that then I think one can think about some enablers. 
So it's to say, well, how are we going to make this happen? How do we help our business leaders in international operations get going with a women's initiative or with race and ethnicity program or an LGBT program when they may not be doing anything at the moment? So a framework of external affiliations, uh, working with external best practice bodies, um, sharing internal best practice, maybe even have a global program uh, for a sort of women's network globally, for example, would be enablers for the local operations. If you've done that, you can then create, in business change terms, the sort of the business change requirement or the charters that exist and say, right, if we're going to do this, what are the characteristics of our inclusive culture? What are the things that we need to do to make sure that in the context of women in the workplace and gender, that we are meeting the metrics and objectives that we set for ourselves, that we're meeting the obligations of the women's empowerment principles, that we're delivering the changes that are actually going to allow the corporate strategy to be successful. When you've got that, you've got a really good set, a solid baseline, if you like, and a, and a foundation to be able to go local and say, right, what are we going to do in our local business divisions, uh, in the geographies around the world, if you're international, say, right, here's what we're setting out to do as a company, here, here are some enablers, here's what we want to achieve, now let's do some of the local programming and let's make change happen locally, knowing full well that if you sort of tug the little piece of string, a bell somewhere is going to ring inside the corporate strategy to say this is directly relevant to what we need to achieve as a company. So it really is a sort of think about it end to end and then making sure every piece of change really delivers to the global strategy. And I, I think that's a, so I'm sitting here just like writing loads of notes as you know. <laughs> and, and I think that's really interesting because too often we're doing the local bit first because we're thinking that's where we should be starting. Let's do a local initiative, and that might grow into something big and wonderful. Where actually, I, I love your, your summary there, and I probably wrote it down sort of right. So there's the enablers, so there's like the passing on of the, the knowledge, but you've got to have the commitment, the measure, so that everyone right up to the top of the organization know what we're aiming for. You, you have your charters, which is what, what's our, our characteristics of our culture. And then once you've got that bedrock, you then move over what can we do locally based on that. And I think that's yeah. a really great summary and, and hopefully people listening will be thinking, yeah, actually I can pull some things from that straight away that we can start thinking about back in our organisation. So cool. that, that's great. And I know we, we spoke before we, we um, started recording about the difference that turnover makes. Um, with high turnover mm. versus low turnover. Yeah. Do you want to just give a little overview of that? Because I found that quite interesting. <laughs> sure. Uh, so w one of the things I did notice when speaking to different companies and organisations is sort of stating the obvious, but sometimes we forget to contextualise, that the problems that each individual organisation or company faces are unique to that organisation. It's your own culture. Uh, and therefore, um, it, the changes that you see have worked maybe in another company, one may be able to bring on board, but will probably need a bit of adaptation. But also different companies operate in slightly different ways. You know, there's some organisations for very good reasons who have quite a high throughput of people. They recruit a lot of people every year, maybe through a grad programme. And they have a lot of people moving through the organisation, sort of like a flow of people. And so their big challenge is about attracting and recruiting good quality staff. And so there's a massive piece of work there about understanding the demographics that you're trying to recruit into, that you're serving, and how do you make sure you bring those people in. Other organisations 
don't have the same business operating model because of the market they work in or because of strategic choice. Uh, and they may have a much slower movement of people through the organisation. That's not a bad thing. You, know, you get lots of benefits associated with that. But it means that the primary challenge isn't necessarily about attracting and recruiting people. It's much more about what's the lived experience of people within the organisation. How do you make sure that your good people don't leave? And how do you make sure you get the absolute best you possibly can for everybody? So you really drive corporate productivity uh, th through the people that you've got. Now, I'm not saying that you do one or the other because, again, neither doing one nor the other doesn't make sense. But it's about where the, the focus is and where the balance of effort is. And I think that, that's quite interesting. I think there's a continuum yeah, there, yeah, between yeah. one and the yeah. other. And I think um, your internal talent processes, your retention processes and everything like that for those low turnover areas becomes paramount to making sure that the, the diversity of your people initially is is going in the right direction because you haven't got that ability to influence the the attraction and, and, and selection of people coming into your business. And yeah. I think sometimes something as simple as that, I mean, it was a dawning reality for me about 25 minutes ago, but uh, something as simple as that can actually really help you focus what you do inside of an organisation to make a difference in DNI. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because if, if one doesn't sort of really think about what's the problem that we've got, um, that we need to solve and really make it relevant, then for a start you won't necessarily appreciate what changes need to happen. And secondly, you probably won't be successful in implementing them because they won't feel natural. They won't feel like the solution for our for our challenges. Now, let's be you know honest, this is tough stuff. You know, you're talking about culture within companies, you're talking about the way that people operate and behave on a day-to-day -day basis. So a lot of this is going to create some degree of awkwardness and discomfort along the way. If you're going to go through that sort of pain, you've got to be reasonably confident you're doing it for the right reasons and you're making the right changes. And so having that really good understanding of yourselves as an organisation, as individual people, absolutely has to be part of uh, building up a plan then that you, you say, well, what are we going to intervene on? And you mentioned earlier about sort of working level projects and strategic level work. It's, you know, where do you start? You know, the start the strategy or start the implementation? And again, there's no, I don't think there's a uniform right answer. I didn't speak to anybody who had solely started from a strategic point of view and gone down um, or who, who had solely started working level up. If, if anything, much more, uh, much more frequently, I found people who had local projects going on that were almost looking for a strategy to hang, hang, hang the messages on that it was felt to be the right thing to do. Uh, there would be enthusiasts around a particular topic area, you know, women in the workplace who sort of felt they wanted to make, make the world a better place in their company or people who are LGBT and so on. Or somebody in HR feeling that DNI is a thing that should be done, so let's do it, do it, do DNI in quotes. Um, I think that all needs to happen. But if it happens without the direction and the strategy, then one potentially runs the risk of it just being seen as a sort of side project as opposed to being really keyed into delivering what the company wants and needs to be delivered. Yeah, and I think that's, that's interesting. And we've, had, we've talked a lot of the time through this podcast about the strategic intent mm -hmm. and it needs to be knitted in. And I think my takeaway from this is very much we need to make the or, or influence our boards to actually take it seriously for all these reasons and benefits. And maybe it's our role in HR to actually get that story and that agenda moving upwards in the organisation. But I did want to ask you before we finish about that. That's great for strategy, but most of the people who probably listen into this 
aren't ex-co-members mm. of FTSE 100 <laughs> yeah. organisations. So me as an as a, as a employee in an organisation, be it a manager, someone in HR, what can, what can we be taking away from the research that you've been doing or what your findings? Sure, sure, sure. Um, so I think the first observation I'd make is I, I really do believe that every single one of us every single day has the opportunity to positively influence diversity and positively influence inclusion. Uh, and that could be if, if with our work colleagues and our peers about the day-to-day interactions that we have. If you're a team leader, then it's about what context you set for your team discussions. Do people in your team feel they can have awkward conversations if they need to? Uh, have you got a really good appraisal as to what your own microculture might look like um, and the types of people that you're attracting to come and work with you and, and work for you? If you're a business leader, then it's about how you're engaging around the rest of the organization. It's about the culture you're creating. And what do people see happening? And what's your day-to-day decision-making? You know, do people see that you're living the values that you're talking about and the day-to-day decisions actually line up with those? And then at the strategic level, we're back to the, the corporate strategy. But one way I like looking at these things is, is to sort of break it down into things like processes and work streams and life cycles. So if you just take the employee life cycle as an example, then all the way from attracting people to come work for you to the recruitment process, to the onboarding, uh, to the training, the learning and development, the promotion process and the um, rewards and recognition and so on. Every single step along the way, I think we could, everybody could ask um, ourselves, what could I do in this particular part of the the engagement to positively influence diversity or, or inclusion? And I'd be amazed if one can't find things every single day that one can, can one can work on. You know, if you're in a functional role, then um, if you're in marketing, uh, then the whole business of attracting and, uh, people to come and work for you that's a, that's a marketing function. That's not something HR can do. HR can facilitate it, but then the messaging needs to be managed through marketing. Um, if it's around uh, dealing with recruitment, then who, what's the HR function or supply chain management doing to make sure that your your contractors who are um, finding you recruits have been briefed on your expectations when it comes to long lists and short lists. Um, moving away from the employee side, if you're, uh, if you're in the procurement function, then what are you doing to influence all of your suppliers to actually participate in thinking about your um, workforce diversity and workplace inclusion expectations? Uh, customer management, you know, are, are we engaged with our customers and going to joint events, hosting events, inviting guest speakers to come in on best practice? Are we running c- collaboration events and co-creating solutions between ourselves? And do we have the right people in the room to make that happen and be successful? So really, basically, in summary, every single one of us in every single one of our roles should be thinking whenever we need to make a decision, some diversity first, inclusion first, as in what can I do to just inch everything we do forward to make it more inclusive for people and bring the diversity agenda full focus? Absolutely, yes. Now, that's not to say there aren't programs and projects that need to run in parallel, but let's not position this as something that somebody else is doing as a special project. Let's all take personal responsibility. That's fantastic. And, and Stephen, I have to say, we've already used it for a lot of time on this podcast. <laughs> so uh, we could go on forever and, and maybe maybe down the line we, we can look at that kind of thing. 
I just want to say thank you very much for your time. I am sitting here with loads of notes and everything, and I am definitely going to do something differently uh, tomorrow and the day forward after speaking to you. Thank Excellent. you. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to your uh, Tap Talks HR podcast. Hopefully, you'll find them very enjoyable. Do follow us on your podcast channel of choice. Um, that's it for now. Thank you very much, and speak soon. Thank you.